Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about a dozen years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And Rob, Rob. Fortress Fortney. I'm a, yeah, I'm a journalist, uh, former competitive bodybuilder, powerlifter, and the handsome one of the, on the show. The handsome one. Rob, you have a face for radio. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is Phil. I am a uh, strength coach. I run Strength Guild. I run Lift for Hope and USSF. Which we do weightlifting, powerlifting, and strong strongman. So, <laughs> all right, and we we have a guest host with us. We've had her on the show recently, Danny Shugart. Thanks for being with us, Danny. Thanks for having me. I'll tell you. How about you come up with an introduction for yourself in about two sentences, like Rob does so smoothly there. <laughs> Who sure. are you? Uh, my name is Danny, and I am a new competitor, a new physique, or actually figure competitor, and um, I'm an author of a book uh, that's that's about eating disorders and, and fitness in general, and I have the website goodgirlfitness.com. Okay. Hey, we are going to cover a little bit of news, everybody, and then we're going to just jump into a, a big topic today, which is, um, well, the topic is after the diet. And the reason we're having this is because with all of the fitness media out there, I'm not sure I've ever seen uh, an adequate or really any attempt at talking about what do you do after a target date diet? You know, what's the aftermath like? So I have a bunch of questions uh, for everybody here. But let's start with a quick bit of news. I just saw uh, actually two pieces from Penn State. Uh, Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, this first one was April 2nd, 2014, so very new, by Jeff uh, Molholm. Uh, here it is. Mice on a high-fat diet that consumed decaf green tea extract and exercised regularly experienced sharp reductions in final body weight and other improvements in health. Apparently, after 16 weeks, uh, high-fat-fed mice that exercised regularly and ingested green tea extract showed an average body mass reduction of 27% and an average abdominal fat reduction of 37%. And then they go on to say that they also experienced 17% reduction in fasting blood glucose and a 65% decrease in plasma insulin. And a lot of listeners realize insulin sort of that Jekyll and Hyde hormone, of course, where uh, some is good for preserving muscle, of course, but too much. And then that's actually sort of fat storage and, you know, you don't want too much. Uh, it says there's also a reduction in insulin resistance of 65%. Again, over 16 weeks of these mice consuming the green tea extract. So I thought that was very interesting. It says the research was published uh, online in the Molecular Nutrition Food Research Journal. Uh, and the authors suggest that humans will similarly or should similarly realize these sorts of benefits. So it goes on to you know, talk about the different polyphenols and whatnot in the green tea like the EGCG, they get so much attention. It says um, they used decaf. Um, it says our findings suggested that green tea in the absence of caffeine can enhance these effects uh, of exercise. 
Uh, they said decaffeination might not be crucial to the study, but Lambert and colleagues just wanted to be sure that the presence of caffeine didn't blur the results because, of course, people might say, oh, well, they just they had improvements because of the caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, but So they took the caffeine out. So there is something going on, it looks like, at least in animal models with green tea extract. So there was another link also from Penn State back from 2012, as I just did a little bit of homework here. Um, this one says an ingredient in green tea helps reduce blood sugar spikes, uh, again, in mice, but it lay, may need, lead to new diet strategies. Again, they talk about EGCG, um, and they fed these mice cornstarch, and they looked at their blood sugar responses, their blood, blood uh-huh. glucose responses. And uh, I'm pretty sure this is the same guy, Lambert. Um, it says the spike in blood glucose level is about 50% lower, 5-0. That's a lot. Uh, then the increase in blood glucose of the mice that were not fed the EGCG. Mm-hmm. And again, they were simultaneously fed cornstarch. So um, Penn State, everybody, if you're interested in green tea research, that looks like a hotbed for it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're middle-aged, you start getting fading carbohydrate handling. You know, your glucose sensitivity, insulin sensitivity, glucose tolerance starts to fade. Um, unless you're fortress, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so that's green tea. And, Danny, you uh, and I have been talking about a a little bit that was on TED, uh, the TED Talks. And there was a woman on there talking about dieting. And uh, can you tell us what happened with all that? Yeah, she she actually started with a personal story. And she talked about how uh, she started dieting at a young age. And um, uh, diet after diet, she just gained more and more weight. But um, her whole TED Talk... While I agree with parts of it, you know, the the parts that I agree with, she talked about how we ought to become more mindful and listen to our bodies and not eat when we're not hungry and eat the foods that satisfy us. But she paints a very, very bleak picture. And, of course, she talks about the set point theory, which, you know, has a lot of um, validity to it. But she talks about how when you gain weight, it, temporary weight gain becomes permanent weight gain for most people and anyone who goes on a diet uh, will eventually become overweight and and put that weight on and keep it on for the long haul but the the thing is is that she's lumping a whole lot of diets together so of course if you do a Weight Watchers diet or a diet that just reduces the amount of crap that you're eating and you're still used to eating a lot of crap doesn't really change your behaviors or preferences for foods that that support um, a faster metabolism or uh, foods that you know the thermic. She didn't take into account the thermic effect of food. She didn't take into account hyperpalatable foods that actually mess up your metabolism and mess up your appetite for more hyperpalatable foods. And she also didn't take into account um, the whole fitness community and how actually having um, muscle on your body can help you to change your set point and um, actually change your your behaviors in general when it comes to weight loss for the long haul. So I I feel like this TED Talk was directed mostly at the sedentary population of people who aren't really changing their preferences for healthier foods. Right. Now, Mm -hmm. I remember there was a promise made, at least in the title, that I kept looking for and it never seemed to materialize. Um, yeah. And I, it's been a while since I actually watched that one. But, uh, yeah, I really did get the opinion or the kind of the feeling from that that she 
I don't know. She definitely hasn't approached this, like you said, from any type of anything but a calorie balance, you know, eat less kind of approach, you know, as opposed to a muscle building, lifestyle change sort of thing. And she was sort of negative about it. But, um, yeah, the suggestion in the title of the talk, I don't think she ever really gave the answer that that she was sort of promising um, as to why why diets don't work, I think it was. Oh, right. Exactly. Exactly. Which diets? I mean, I don't think it's fair to say no diet will ever work and you're just going to get fatter. Because if you can change your set point upward and make yourself get fatter and stay fatter, then heck, you can change your set point downward and make yourself thinner and stay thinner. If it can go one way, then it can go the other way. Yeah. That's sort of a theme that we've talked about over the years Mm -hmm. is once you get your body weight at a certain set point... Uh, yeah, why couldn't you manipulate that? So we've talked about crashing through barriers to try to weigh more and then over time sort of recompose the best you can. You know what I mean? So that's something that I've noticed. Like my body likes to weigh right around 210, you know, and compared to some of these guys, that's not very big. But compared to the average dad, that's that's a little heavier than the average guy, I think. But the point being is um, whether it's mostly muscle or it's not, it's, you know, and my body comp is not where I want it to be. It really likes about that 210. Uh, so it does sort of suggest that you you could almost recompose at different body weights. You know what I mean? And that, like you're saying, the body weight set points, maybe it's something that if you approach it right, could be used to your advantage. You know, right. so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, I remember that talking. I usually love TED Talks. And I don't remember yes. all the details, like I said, but um, I don't know. To me, it was like, a, like you were saying, it's sort of almost geared to the general population with all the flaws that they usually follow when they try to quote unquote diet, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, well, diet is actually what we're going to talk about in the topic uh, today. So we're going to go to an early break, and when we come back. I have a series of about six or eight questions here, and we're going to delve into this whole refeeding idea. And I don't mean just like a weekly refeed when you bump your carbs back up, but I mean. After you've gone through this indoctrination process of getting very lean and changing your diet fairly dramatically, you know, you have your competition, then what? Because nobody seems to address it. So we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, Lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, 
Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back to Iron Radio. Um, before we get to the topic of the day, um, I just wanted to quickly bring up a uh, query that I had from one of our listeners um, via email. Um, and he asks, he says, you guys see we can support the show by buying something from the store, um, but I don't see a link to a store. So, Lonnie, you're our tech guy. Uh, well, Phil and I handle kind of split this stuff, but um, mm-hmm. actually that's, that's a good response. Because Phil and I handle some of this, originally we had a Zazzle store. <clears throat> and I still use it sometimes to send people mugs and gifts because they, there's a Zazzle Australia and there's a Zazzle... Britain, you know, and I mean, they're, they're everywhere. And so I can get Iron Radio labeled or, you know, um, iconed merchandise all over the place. But we're going to have our own store. So in response to that, that question is we're actually going to start a store. It's coming this summer. And now if you look on our homepage on ironradio.org, instead of a link to our old Zazzle store, which, by the way, was sort of it used Flash and, you know, Apple products don't always like that, and there were some other issues too. But um, and of course, one of Phil's companies can do some of this. You know, we can do it on our own. So yeah. we don't want middlemen as much as as much as we've used before. I mean, Phil's been making cool banners and all kinds of stuff for our listeners. But um, so we're going to add some things to our own store, uh, and it's going to be thematic. I've been working on it on my hard drive, but I haven't published any of this stuff yet. But so there's going to be different halls in the store. You know, we'll probably do some kind of fun um, mythical theme or something. I might have fun with it. We'll see. But the point being is uh, Phil and Rob and I will each suggest different products. And sometimes it might be stuff that we make more directly or have a closer hand in. Sometimes it's just a product we really like, you know. Like there's been a buzz on our forums about that Valhalla Coffee, you know, the Death Wish Coffee Company and stuff. I'd like to get a deal with those guys and maybe be able to buy that for cheap, you know, get some discounts. So Mm -hmm. there's lots of things that we can do. Uh, in the store, but you know, I'm a teacher, right? So I don't have time to do that until the summer. Yeah. But, so that's and a long winded. I, I tell him to also keep a look at our Facebook page. If he's not on there, get on there. Um, because we will have things like I had the banners up there. Uh, we did a bunch of Iron Radio shakers. Um, and we did a couple shirts. So stuff like that. Look for that because I'll, I'll do more of that. Usually I try to do something once every couple months until the store's up and going. Right. And, you know, we're not just self-aggrandizing, like, here's our icon, here's our logo. But there's, like, Phil, I know you put, like, uh, cool sayings on them and quotes yeah. and, you know, yeah. something fun. So, 
<clears throat> anyway, look for it this summer. That's one of my goals anyway. Uh, now, having said that, okay, let's get to our topic of the day, and it is after the diet. So, uh, once again, we have Danny Shugart in the fourth chair with us today, acting as a co-host, because uh, we could use that female uh, perspective. Um, so, my first question is for Danny, and that is, let's start before the contest, right? Just before, when things are very strict, um, are you comfortable sharing, like, what are the total calorie, daily KCAL and macros looking like uh, for you or maybe for fitness competitors you're familiar with? Well, um, you know, mine are a little bit different um, simply because I had a, a gut issue. I've got leaky gut right now, and so I'm contending with that during the competition prep. And um, what happened was I had to cut out a whole lot of foods, not because of the competition prep or needing to lean down, but simply because I couldn't tolerate anything for a couple of weeks. And it just got, it It was at its worst a couple of weeks ago. And uh, my lowest calorie intake was about 1,500, 1,600. But I am a 5'10 girl with a lot of muscle and I, you know, I need a whole lot more calories than that. And so I was really low. My coaches said I was too depleted and they said that they would have to pull me from the show if I didn't, uh, if I wasn't able to add more foods back into my diet. So now I'm at about 1,800 calories and, um, and it's, it's interesting because I'm not, I'm not having to, to go that low with my diet, um, simply because my coaches are still wanting me to, to look more built up. So I, I think the key here is not getting into competition prep needing to do a whole lot of leaning down if you start your competition prep kind of lean and kind of fit already then you don't have to take such drastic measures at the end now it's different for men who have to look ripped but with figure females at least on the amateur level they don't want us ripped They, they want us a little bit softer and a little bit rounder and feminine and and still kind of um uh, yeah, just soft. They don't want us to be too lean or too mm-hmm. small. Okay. So what about macronutrients like protein, carb, and fat, either as percentages or grams? I'm just trying to get as much information out to people as possible. Okay. Well, I'm at about um, 30, 30, 30 right now, that sort of thing. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's fairly even. I mean, protein is, is at about, um, you know, one gram per pound of body weight, a little over that, and um, I'm still, my coaches want me to still consume plenty of carbs right now, actually, because I got too, I got too, um, depleted when I had to take all those foods out of my diet. Um, so I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> it's weird. I'm actually adding a lot of carbs here at the end, which is not something people would normally do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you would describe yourself though, as even though you're trying to build back up, you had some specific uh, issues. Um, exactly. Pretty strict, though. Like, you're probably really paying very close attention to everything you're eating. Exactly. I'm logging everything. Everything is, is really, really clean. There's no processed foods. There's no... Um, there's nothing... Uh, everything is, is tastes good, but nothing is, um, you know, delicious. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hear you. 
So, okay, so as a follow-up, how long did it take you to get to this fairly, I mean, if we want to call it an extreme state, but this very watchful state? Like you said, even if you start, you know, fairly in shape and it doesn't, you don't have to jump too severely into it. Was there a period that you edged toward the way you're eating on a daily basis right now? You know, um, my husband and I have always just been healthy eaters. We we don't, I mean, to us, a cheat meal is um, some mixed nuts and some dark chocolate. So we don't really splurge that much. Um, so going into the competition, it wasn't when my coach said, you need to eat these things. She actually bulked up my diet and made it a little bit more abundant than what I was even giving myself. So I was on a chronic low carb diet. She said, you need to add muscle mass. She added a lot more carbs to my diet and a lot more, um, uh, you know, calories to my diet. So, um, it was kind of interesting going into it because I expected her to, you know, take more foods out, but she didn't really do that. Um, because I needed to put on a little bit more muscle, which is weird because I've always felt like I'm an endomesomorph. I've always felt like I've been kind of a thick girl, but um, apparently not. <laughs> okay. You're eating clean, um, for lack of a better word, you know, and I agree, things can taste good and you don't have to be ridiculously, like abusively uh, restrictive. Um, mm-hmm. But would you argue for a lot of women, it takes a while uh, to get into like that final month is not how they normally eat. Oh, right. 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 So if it took a while to get there behaviorally or, you know, just getting used to preparing all your food in advance or carrying it in a cooler or whatever you do for a physique competition, um, the contest arrives, you know, uh, maybe you even get more strict in those last few days with water balance and this and that. And then the show comes and now what? Um, and that's really the crux of this is if there's a behavioral trend toward this um, relatively temporary state before a contest, what do you do afterwards? I mean, do you go back to eating the handfuls of nuts and, and the dark chocolate and, and the occasional delicious item? Or how do you do that? Um, very slowly, I would say. I mean, you know, you don't, if you're logging every every morsel that you put in your mouth, then then you know that it's probably if you know ex- about where you're at calorie wise, you don't want to pop your calories up, you know, another several hundred calories. I mean, you don't want to go from very a very scarce diet to a very abundant diet overnight. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that getting on stage. Uh, and afterwards is going to call for being very, very strict and, and uh, kind of scaling it back. But then afterwards, um, you know, just going slow, taking it easy, having, allowing yourself a cheat meal or two, but, but not going balls to the wall with it for days on end. Mm-hmm. So what are the concerns? Like if you want to be careful with the refeed, and I, I agree that it behooves a lot of people to be a little cautious, you know, and, and I guess be thoughtful and conscientious with how they start to return to normalcy a little bit. Um, right. But what are the concerns? Like, what don't you want to happen, you know what I mean, in the refeed period? 
is it just a concern? Is it like a psychological concern over fat gain? Um, That's a good point. Um, Yeah, I I think there's a lot of that. Of course, I mean, if you allow yourself to binge, you're going to have that remorse afterwards. And and a lot of people, you know, after being so lean for so long, might try to overcompensate for that. And then that's where it turns into one of those cycles of uh, being too restrictive and then going overboard and then being too restrictive and going overboard. And of course, a lot of women who get into this... um, they do have have coaches who tell them, um, you know, cut out all these calories, go on a 1000 calorie diet and, you know, be as lean as possible when you get on stage. And then afterwards, they've got adrenal fatigue and autoimmune issues and, and lower calorie diet, they can't seem to keep the weight off anymore because their metabolism is broken. Right. And I, I, that's one of the things that's sort of woven into this is I've heard a lot of talk online about metabolic damage. And uh, some people will talk about adrenal fatigue, and I'm usually a little iffy about that. I think the way a lot of people talk about adrenal fatigue is a little confused. It's not like people have um, adrenal exhaustion in the way they think they do. They might have a reduction in adrenaline receptor number. They might not respond well to adrenaline because they're in an overtrained state, but... um, You know, there are a lot of concerns that sort of hover around this metabolic damage idea, like you know, your metabolic rate might de- be depressed. Your T3 mm-hmm. levels might be down, you know, your, your thyroid status. Um, yeah. There are enzymes just waiting in fat tissue, and I can, I'm not going to quote, but I can pull things off my hard drive right now that shows like LPL, which is an enzyme that pulls fat out of the blood for storage, uh, is very active after you're very lean and you've been on a reduced calorie diet. So your body is primed to be in a restorage mode. Uh, a couple of months ago, Mike Nelson and Josh Cotter and I were talking about even certain genes get turned on at that point that look like you're just primed to restore everything. So there are some legitimate concerns, I think. Your physiology is in a semi-starved state. I think even if you do it right, you know, you are in an artificially lean state or, or maybe a non-sustainable state. You know, like most guys... I don't think we're going to suggest should be 4% body fat year round. You know, most gals I don't think should be uh, anything less than probably low teens, you know, for long periods of time, arguably. I mean, I have known some women that could be 9% fat and not lose their period, for example, but there's that's some rare examples, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, Rob, if you're still with us, did you have any kind of psychological yep. concern or biological concern when you started eating after your competitions? Oh, no. None whatsoever. I uh, immediately went to my first uh, drive through window <laughs> and never looked back. That leads me to wonder if there's not, and again, without sounding sexist, but is if there's a gender thing here. I mean, certainly there are guys who would fret over fat gain, too. I actually was extremely excited to gain weight so I could have the energy and the size that I wanted back to train the way I like to train. But as our listeners probably know by now, um, long-time listeners, I'm all about the lifting. So, mm-hmm. you know, what you do on a bodybuilding stage or on a lifting platform or walking around on the beach is so far distant 7,000 7, in my list of priorities. Mm-hmm. I like I live to go into the gym and perform. Um, so, like I said, I just want to get back to 
the the intensity I was able to. Uh, okay. I was heavier and more mm -hmm. fueled, so. Because I know Phil. I mean, whether we're talking about competition or not, mm -hmm. uh, you've been pretty damn restrictive in your early days. I'm guessing. Oh um, yeah. And how did did you bounce back from that all at once? I mean, there wasn't like a single target date for you that you had to come back from extraordinary leanness, was there? No, no. And that's I guess my fastest loss was. I lost a hundred pounds in three months. Um, That's a lot. <laughs> and then from that point, I, I slowly went down about another forty. And then from there, uh, so the lightest I've been is one sixty-five. The heaviest I've been is three twenty. Um, from one sixty-five, it was a slow climb back up. Like we've talked about, like you know, uh, okay, I'm gonna add ten, fifteen pounds, and then I'd add it, and then I'd hold that, and then I'm okay, I'm gonna add ten, fifteen pounds, and I'd hold that type of thing and all along changing my set point you know right now if i eat normal i'll drop to to 55 260 mm -hmm. uh three four years ago that was to more like 240 235 240 so um yeah it's just slowly changed over time by by getting there and holding it did you plan um, a certain kind of, like, macros, or did you try to eat clean in general and eat more? You know what I mean? Was there a plan? Uh, on the way down, yeah, there was a plan. Yeah, everything was micromanaged. You're talking, you know, I knew every – I had to, you know, meals a week ahead of time to where you get exactly this many grams of this, and I, I counted macros and calories and all of it. You know, mm -hmm. I'd get 23 grams of fat and – 26 grams of protein whatever you know all, all that yeah so it was very very meticulous and planned out at, at, at certain points um on the way up not so much just eat you know i really like the on the way up eat for i like going for for men 15 20 pounds jumps for females more like five or ten mm -hmm. at a time and just instead of saying i'm gonna add a pound a week because i've seen too many people fail on that um they say they're going to add a pound a week, and then ten weeks later, they're still weigh the same. Right. The math is just too close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just, I just have them. Okay, we're putting on this weight as quickly as possible, and then once we're there, you know, you have a guy add on fifteen, twenty pounds, and then they hold that for three, four months. That fifteen or twenty pounds they initially gain changes. <clears throat> you know, and then okay, are you happy with where you're at? Let's take another jump. You know, right. Type of thing. I've often wondered, like, um, you know, what defines clean? You know, we talk about clean food. But, like, it's actually hard to put your finger on something that's a total no-no uh, in a lot of ways when it comes to, you know, like what you're talking about. If you really want to crash forward, you have to get a little bit aggressive and reckless, almost yeah. reckless. But you could do that with meats and cheese and pasta and rice mm. and stuff like that. And it's not necessarily like chips and ice cream, you yeah. know. Right. Uh, so there's some distinctions there i guess but the, the only one i'd say is you know i would not tell anybody to like sit down to a bucket of trans fat and just eat it yeah fries <laughs> <You know? laughs> fries and hash browns are pretty low on my list as far as yeah i mean that's a treat but, food i think in a lot of ways um so. but your your body weight phil has ranged hugely compared to the average person oh yeah um, yeah and now rob what, what was your competition weight compared to your usual body weight at the time um, well, my last bodybuilding competition was many years ago, but, sure. um, I was 260 then. I think I was weighed in that morning at 201. Okay. And I think by the night show, I was probably like 204 or something like that. Okay. So almost so, 60 pounds. A little bit different. Usual. Um, yeah, but I, uh, 
I regained 35 of it within with easily within three days. That's almost frightening. So, because I remember, because yeah. I remember I was well into late 230s by like Monday night. So, to be fair, for a big man, a lot of that's water, right? Yes. But, um, it was a ton of water. I would not dispute that at all. Um, yeah. I felt a lot better. And well, <laughs> I, in my opinion, I looked a lot better too. But, um, you know, again, I I do prefer kind of a not quite a stage look personally. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of preferred the more bulky look, so yeah. but well, still you, reasonably tight. You guys heard me sort of fuss the last time I competed. that The, the coaches, or rather the uh, judges that are looking for the, the prison camp kind of look and I don't want to sound you know too harsh or rude there but I I don't want that and I wouldn't do it I you know I'm like I'm not doing that you know I'm I'm right around four percent fat I'm dehydrated what the hell more do you want from me you know yeah. and I started disliking that I remember Rob you and I were talking backstage uh once and um I'm like you know to hell with it if they want more emaciation than I'm displaying right now I'm already about 40 pounds less than I normally weigh <laughs> Uh, they can stick it, you know. They're going to yeah. have to judge me where I am right here. Um, so, Danny, what about you? When you compete, how much lighter are you on stage than your usual body weight? Well, um, you know, I'm going to have to go by, like, photo shoots um, because I haven't competed. I mean, I did bodybuilding in high school. Okay. And as a high schooler, I would go um, – I would fluctuate – probably about 10, 15 pounds. Um, but you know, my last photo shoot when I really, really dehydrated myself, um, I went from about 155 to 140. Um, okay. and that just took a couple weeks. So it's worth noting too. A lot of this is percentages too. You know, I mean, if, uh, if you're out there listening and you're a woman and you weigh 140 pounds, you know, a 10 or 20 pound change is a bigger deal to you than it is to Rob or Phil or even me. Um, mm-hmm. just because of percentage, you know, of, of body weight. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's, I think it shocks some people when you, they start to realize it's a fairly temporary, you know, depressed body weight kind of situation. Um, yeah. one of the things that I always do when I work with clients is try to, when I do a little contract with them, like I know a lot of diet coaches, what they'll do is they'll have people pay a lot of money up front, Um, and then the person's excited and they make the the commitment and all that sort of thing. But then if you don't like the coach, oftentimes if you're not careful, you're out the money. Uh, And I've never liked it like that. I do it a lot more like I do a traditional clinical approach, which is session by session, you know, follow up by follow up and that sort of thing. And if that way, if people aren't progressing or making the kind of progress they want, then, you know, they don't have to continue to use my services. It's a lot like Mm -hmm. just going to a doctor for follow-ups in in a lot of ways. Um, That's awesome. But having said that, you know, I think you got to build in at least four weeks after the show, after the contest, where you've got your diet coach who can help you come back to normalcy. Like there are certain fats that are more prone to storage than others. You know what I mean? There are certain carbohydrates that are probably more prone to fat storage than others. Um, so there's a lot of, th- and, and to, to say nothing of the psychological side of this. I mean, Rob said he didn't really care. You know, and I've certainly known guys, I've known wrestlers who, you know, they were, had disordered eating and, but it was, although disordered, it really wasn't classical eating disorder and that they just didn't have any emotional connection to it at all. You know, end of wrestling season, they're just eating like they always did. So I, I get it that people are different, but 
I think for both physical and psychological reasons, it's really important if you work with a diet coach, to, even if he's not used to doing it or she's not used to doing it, is discuss with them uh, maybe a four-week period of follow-ups after the contest so you can get back on your feet, like Rob is saying, so you can feel strong and a little bit thicker. And, you know, uh, I've actually come, and I, I was not like this in my 20s, I'm telling you, but I've actually come to the point where I like to put some fat back on for the similar reasons that Rob said, especially now that I'm middle-aged, because the injuries go away, a lot of those little nagging sort of depletion injuries, you know what I'm talking about. And um, you just feel a lot more robust so you can get back to training. Because like Rob, I, I like the gym. You know, I just like to lift. I like the training aspect yeah. of it. Um, even some of those yeah. old Tom Platt's things, you know, they, they ask him, how do you feel about that last contest? And, you know, what are you looking forward to? And he's talking about getting back in the gym. I mean, even if it's to train for another show, you know, it was, you could see his love for the gym, you know, that sort of calling. Um, well, they were even talking to Dorian Yates once, you know, back back when he was doing his Mr. Li- Mr. Olympia run. And they asked him once about, about some of his um, peers, competitive peers who, you know, would take a few months or even several months after the Mr. Olympia off training and they asked him what he thought about that and he said well you know i think that speaks volumes about who likes the training who doesn't he says you know if you if you if you like doing something you want to do it all the time and he says yeah. you know so well there was definitely the guys like what like kevin lavroni or was flex wheeler did yeah. that too didn't he just took weeks or months well, he ke- well yeah kevin lavroni was the guy who uh was notorious for that yeah just months on end just doesn't even go to the gym you know, like half the year off after and just stuck them. And he would, he would go like literally down to like a 210 soft pounds. And then within wow. easily within four or five months before the Olympia, he'd get, go back to 245, 250 at like 5% body fat. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it just gets so dramatic. I don't know. Um, I think for the average person who does like to get back to training after, let's say something realistic, like maybe a couple of days to a week off, Um, Because I know, like, Phil, you talk about, like, Olympic flu, you know, Mm -hmm. and, I mean, a lot of people actually get head colds or they they kind of fall apart um, right after the stress, you know, and the depletion of a competition. Um, But I got to think that you would, like Danny said, you reintroduce things. Like, if just to grossly simplify this, if you're the kind of person who's – your diet coach is pulling 50 grams of carbs per week out of your diet down to a certain point, well, then – reverse that process, you know, and put 50 grams back in each week up to a certain mm-hmm. point, you know, that kind of thing. And as opposed to just, you know, I've seen a lot of bodybuilders, uh, similar to what Rob said is they literally would become cyanotic. They would be blue with all the excess water as they put on 40 pounds in a day, you know, and sometimes this is drug induced because those guys are different, but scary, you know, it's like, you know, you're blue and you're swollen like that. You're like on the verge of heart failure, buddy. I mean, mm. this is scary a little. Uh, so I like the idea of reversing things back up, almost like when you do pyramid sets in the gym, you know, almost kind of thing like that. Um, but my next question for you guys is, um, and this is probably better for Danny, but what about the cardio? Um, are you doing a lot of cardio right before uh getting on stage and then how do you reverse that if you do well um you know i i think that uh a ton of cardio is is kind of becoming a thing of the past for women now i think we're getting to the point where we're realizing that 
either slow and, and easy cardio um, first thing in the morning or, or um, very fast and intense and short cardio is the best. And, and so these, you know, these women who go to the gym and, and spend four hours or, you know, two to four hours in chunks of time throughout the day are just, um, they're kind of spinning their wheels or, you know, it's, it's just not necessary to do lots and lots of steady state cardio. So, um, going back to normalcy for, for women who have coaches that are, um, that are on the cutting edge of, you know, of fitness right now, they're not going to have a problem really. I, I, I don't see that as, as a problem anymore. If, if you've been doing reasonable amounts of cardio, I mean, if you have been killing yourself with hours of cardio every day, then yeah, then it, it will be a lot harder and you may have to continue doing cardio, but just in smaller and smaller amounts as time goes on, just not to, to shock your body and, and put on tons of weight all of a sudden. But if you have been doing short little sessions of hit or, you know, slow and steady walking, you know, walking, everyone should do that, whether or not you're competing, walking is good for you. So it's not like, it's not going to be a challenge for a lot of women after the show to get back to normalcy, as far as that goes, as long as they've been doing it um, in a reasonable manner. Right. Yeah. One of the students at the university that I'm working with a little bit, um, he's actually comparing in a study uh, doing high intensity interval training sort of approach with uh, mm-hmm. a calorie controlled but much longer duration steady state approach. And he's looking at body fat over time. And I haven't seen a lot of direct comparisons like that. So I think that'll be cool to see, you know, what yeah. he comes up with. But so whether it's high intensity interval stuff or it's lots of walks and hikes or I mean, what are your options here? You know, when it comes to physical activity, if you're doing a whole lot of it right before an event to get lean, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. there's no longer a need to be so lean. Mm-hmm. You, you think you drop your volume in something, even if it's just more, less sets and weights, or you know, in the gym, or a shorter session with the weights, or do you just are you yeah. lifting year round the same? Well, um, you know, like you said before, uh, when you guys were talking about it, the people who like to do something will find an excuse to do it all the time, and. Um, if it's really your lifestyle, if it's really in your nature to love working out and to love training, then it's not going to be an issue. I mean, before I started training for a competition, people would come and ask me, what competition are you training for? And I told them I don't compete. And it was just one of those things where it was like, uh, I someone planted the seed in my head years ago and I had been putting it off and putting it off and putting it off simply because I wanted to train because I love to train. I love being in the gym. I love to work hard. I love to sweat. I love to lift. And um, so after the show, I think signing up for this, my biggest worry was, am I going to not love it as much if it becomes an obligation? You know, am I still going to have that internal drive to go to the gym every day if there's not a competition mm-hmm. and to be honest I don't know I mean afterwards I can tell you right now yeah sure I'll, I'll I'll still go back as if I don't have a show but I can't I can't say for sure if that's going to be the case I sure hope so because I mean I nobody has to crack the whip with me I love being in the gym mm-hmm. yeah we've talked about before yeah. you know Rob has always yeah. been a, a champion of 
training for its own sake. You know, of the three of us, Phil by far competes the most, but it's it's still not his only motivator. You know, no. Um, this past uh, um, several days, when I went in to do my, we'll say legs, um, I happened to be doing. There's two guys that two competitive bodybuilders, one that I work with, and another guy at the gym, and. Uh, these guys are heavily into it. One guy is like a national level competitor and all that, all the things that go along with it. Wink, wink. And uh, I was like, hey, you guys are doing legs, man. Why don't you come over and do legs with me? And they were kind of like, you know, and I said, come on, let's do it. So, you know, I said, I, but, you know, the only thing is I run the roots, right? I, you guys do what I do. Not poundage wise or whatever. I don't care. I just, you know, you follow my routine. And, and at the end, these guys are stumbling around and everything. And they were, I mean, they did really well and stuff, but it was amazing to me. Because they were open, verbally saying, "Geez, you know, it's uh, it's so nice to be able to have, so, you know, to to get pushed, to get pushed this hard. I, I, you know, I haven't been pushed this hard in years." And I, and, and again, this is not blowing my own horn, but I was, I, I didn't say anything, but I was thinking to myself, you know, I always push myself. It's this hard every time I go in the gym, you know. Like they were saying, how you know, you know, it's it, when you train with other guys and stuff, it helps you do that. And I was just thinking that it's so different for me, you know, and people like us because it's. I don't need anybody to push me 100%. Yeah. And I don't need somebody yelling at me and screaming at me. I like that stuff. And I'm not saying I don't. Lonnie knows I like that kind of stuff. Um, instill that in, in yourself over time or if that's just something that you have within you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people are intrinsically motivated. You know, I mean, I've always been the headphones in my ears and leave me alone kind of guy, frankly. Um, I was going to say, like Lonnie and I used to train when we lived um, very close to each other. We trained at the same gym and we would oftentimes arrange to be at the gym at the same time. But we often were not doing the same thing at all. It was just nice to have him in the same gym and hopefully vice versa. Yeah, for us. You know, spot. where you can wander you can wander by and your buddy is doing a set of something, so you stop for a couple minutes and spot him and cheer him on and then let him go. But there was never ever a situation where I ever thought that my presence there was somehow making Lonnie do something that he wouldn't be doing if I wasn't there kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. Well, I was just going to offer that we can talk about a love for training, and I think that's a very legitimate point. On the flip side, I, I can be very honest, is the month or even two months before I compete, uh, I don't always train like that. Um, I'm doing a lot more high-intensity interval stuff. I'm doing pre-breakfast you know, treadmill or outdoor hike kinds of stuff. Uh, what I'm doing in the gym is a little bit different, although maybe not quite as different on that front. Um, what I'm doing with my diet is very, very different. So, you know what I mean? I, I suppose everybody's different in that way. But as much as I love training itself, I need to come back out. Uh, at that point, it, at ground zero in that last two weeks, let's say, there's no way that's sustainable for me. I mean, maybe that's just me because I tend to be ectomorphic, you know. I'm not um, I'm not built like a refrigerator, you know. Um, so... I have to do things in order to get that lean um, that there's no way I could sustain all the time. And we've had competitors on right. talk about that, the relative, relatively temporary nature, you know, of what the posing dais athlete looks like compared to what he or she looks like the rest of the year, you know. So I don't want to create a, a false image like, you know, the, what you see on the cover magazine. Those guys always look like that because I don't think they do, you know. And that's, I guess that was the, the impetus for this topic in general is how do you come back from that in a sane way, you know, without becoming blue and cyanotic and on the verge of heart failure or, 
you know, blowing up and getting a spare tire that you'll never get rid of or, you know what I mean, or those kinds of things. Because I do think there are some definite changes physiologically. Uh, but my last question, because we're almost out of time here, is um, I think we've already answered this in part. And it was, do girls differ from boys in any of this? And if so, how? Um, yes. So why don't you go with that one, Danny? Um, I think women uh, are harder on themselves when they when they put on weight. They're more sensitive to that. And um, because for men, it's like, you know, they see it more as a I'm bulking or I can use this. I'm going to use these nutrients and put them to work or, um, you know, putting on some fat is going to do me good. Whereas women, we have always been taught that it's, um, we're more attractive when we're smaller and tighter. So, um, it's a lot, it, it's a little bit, it'll mess with you more psychologically, I think for women, because I think, I think also that when women cut down for a photo shoot or for a show or for any kind of event in their heads, they think, oh, I'm smaller. I'm going to always, I, I need to stay this way. Uh, because this is what looks sexy on me, so I'm going to just be this way forever, and this is the new me. And so they don't take into account that this is not sustainable. It feels really, really good in the moment to be really thin, but they don't realize that this is not a, a, a thing that they can do for the rest of their lives. So um, it's not it's not permanent, and we're whereas women see it as I want to be this way forever. Men see it as this is just how I am right now. And I'm ready to put back on some mass. Yeah. I, I mm -hmm. agree with that. I think it's a skill too. I, I mean, it may be a gender issue, but I think it's also partly a skill to be able to embrace both sides, you know, like yeah. it does. I, I would be a liar if I said it didn't feel fantastic to be ripped, you know, and I've never not being a heavy drug user kind of guy, like some of the guys you see on, you know, internet sites or the magazines, I've never had strided glutes. I don't know what that feels like. You know what I mean? I've had strided quads, you know, sometimes if I sit in a lawn chair in shorts, I have strided glutes. Oh my God. Is that the, is that the same thing? No, or? Rob. <laughs> but it does. My point is it's, it is fun to be very lean, but I think you're right, Danny. It's a, whether it's, it comes more naturally to men, it's hard to talk about this without sounding sexist, you know? Um, but there could be some innate gender differences, but I do think it's a skill too. And maybe the way I have always dealt with it is I identify myself, you know, like in the matrix, he talks about what you're imagining yourself as your residual self image, he says. And I think like that somewhere in between, like the way I imagine myself is somewhere between bloated off season, you know, where I'm artificially elevated in weight and then extremely thin and lean on stage kind of shape. You know, I always picture my, the real me is somewhere in the middle. And I bet Phil, if you gave that some thought, you probably think like that too. Like when you bloat yourself up to 280, 290. Oh, miserable. That's not how you, <laughs> that's not Phil. That's just the yeah. bulked up Phil, yeah. right? You know, yeah. so. No, I agree. It's a, it's the same kind of thing. And you're right. I think the mistake comes, uh, um, and it sounds like Danny's suggesting this might be more true with women and not being a woman. I'm not going to dispute, but it sounds like they might, yeah, they might make that almost error that this is the new me. 
and then they almost feel like a sense of failure when they go back to somewhere a little bit yeah. larger. You yeah. know. Mm. So. Okay, well, do you we, guys want my female point of view or um, <laughs> No. I'm afraid to ask. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering curious. when you wanted me to, I'm just wondering when you want me to offer that. I don't know. I will save that for another another episode. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Before we get sensitive with fortress. Anyway, all right. Well, thanks, everybody. I think we're just about out of time, but it, it's a topic that nobody ever talks about. You know, after the diet, how many times have you, have you read stuff about how to do a refeed? You just don't see very much of that compared to how to get ripped. It's all about the front end, you know, and, right. and that's only a small fraction of your year. I think if you're a clever athlete, most of the time you're probably trying to build muscle and just train. So, right. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, good show, everybody. Yeah, it was a good one. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Until next week. Hey, sports nutrition fans, join us in beautiful Clearwater Beach, Florida, June 20 and 21 for the 11th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo. You'll learn the latest, greatest sports nutrition from the best minds in the business. Some of our speakers include Juan Carlos Santana, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, Gina Lombardi, and many, many more. You'll learn about intermittent fasting, how to exercise to offset poor eating, and also nutritional strategies for maintaining or gaining muscle mass. But the best part is you'll get to rub elbows with the best scientists in the business. The ISSN, why would you go anywhere else? Go to www.theissn.org for more information. That's www.theissn.org for more info. See you there. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.